Thanks for tuning in to My Weight Live, the podcast where we talk to medical experts about the latest research and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at myweightwhattoknow.com or search My Weight What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Weight What to Know. Tonight, we're talking about the skills we can develop that make it easier to achieve our goals, and also what everyone should know about healthy eating and meal planning with dietitian Nada Apaloon. Nada, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Ansley. So you told us that so often people come into your office and say, I just want you to tell me what to eat, or I just need the perfect meal plan. What do you say when someone says that to you? Yeah, that's a very common scenario. Um, I always start by asking the patients to explain um, and describe their previous attempts with weight management and what it was like for them to follow diets or meal plans in the past. And then oftentimes um, what I what I hear is, oh, I've tried this type of diet. I, sh- I followed it for a, a certain period of time. Um, and then as soon as I stopped, the weight came back on. And oftentimes I weighed even more than what I initially started. And that kind of just answers the question. It's this common scenario that kind of repeats itself all the time. Knowing that obesity is a chronic medical condition, and by chronic we mean it's something that people struggle with for a very, very long time, and it's important that we work on a lifelong treatment. Um, And, you know, I always say, you know, printing that diet or me giving you a meal plan, um, you know, it may work short term, but how likely are you going to stick to the meal plan for the rest of your life? So it's important that we work on exploring certain ways of eating that you're able to sustain and adhere to uh, long term or lifelong. All right. So you just explained perfectly, perfectly why it's not having a perfect plan to follow. But what are the things that we all should be thinking about when it comes to eating healthy? And like you said, eating healthy over the long term. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely no one size fits all. Every person is, you know, individual and unique, but there are a few things that I tend to recommend for most people. And those include things like preparing the majority of your food from home, prioritizing whole foods and trying to minimize your consumption of processed or ultra processed foods. Um, You know, trying to follow that healthy plate set by Canada's food guide with half a plate of veggies at every meal making water as your main beverage of choice, um, and then also um, eating regularly throughout the day and honoring your hunger cues. And again, I work with patients on tailoring this to their individual needs and make sure it fits their lifestyle, because really the best meal plan is the one that um, the the individual or patient is able to follow for, for the rest of their lives. All right, Nada. My next question for you is about the gap that exists for many of us between what we know we should be doing and actually doing it. You laid out, you know, half a plate full of veggies, all these really, you know, sensible guidelines that I think we all know we should be doing, but it's hard to do it. And I'm speaking from experience here. So my question for you is, you know, how do we begin putting those guidelines into practice? And we're going to talk tonight about a few of the strategies you use with the people you work with to help them accomplish what they know they should be doing. So the first one you told us you work with your clients on is being clear on their values. So tell us why this is so important. 
So our values are basically the things that are important to us in life, and they um, are how we want to live our lives. And so our values kind of give us a reason why, you know, or the reason why we need to make change. And we know that with weight management um, and managing obesity, it requires this ongoing effort. You know, it's a lot of hard work. And if we don't have a reason why, you know, this, you know, reason why we should be doing all of this, it can be very, very difficult to make change. Um, and so our values basically act as a guide um, and give us kind of a path to help us with moving um, or leading a more meaningful and richful life. So this is obviously going to be different for each person. But, you know, how if someone's watching at home says, how do I figure out, you know, what my values are? What are the questions that you might walk someone through to kind of really distill down? Why are we doing this? Right. So some um, so one way is, you know, asking yourself, um, you know, how I want to kind of live my life or is my weight and health preventing me from doing the things that are important to me in life. So one example is, you know, I don't want um, my health and weight to prevent me from being able to run around with my kids as they're getting older. And that's just one of the common examples um, or, or things that are valuable to certain uh, individuals. So my value would be, I want to be healthy um, and be able to be active with my kids and my grandkids. And that's different than a goal. So talk a little bit about the difference between values and goals. And should we be trying to identify both? Uh, well, I usually encourage patients to really work on identifying their values as opposed to goals when it comes to weight management. And there are a few reasons why, right? A goal usually has an endpoint, and it's often difficult for patients to continue to keep up with the behavior changes once they've reached that goal. So if their goal was, you know, I want to lose 20 pounds um, in the next two months, they lose the weight, they reach their 20 pound weight loss goal, but then what? And it's often really easy to revert to, you know, old eating habits. Habits, and we know that that can often lead to weight regain. Um, so they have an endpoint; they can change at any time. Um, and if we set unrealistic goals or unachievable goals and then don't achieve them, then it can be very, very discouraging for us to even continue. Values, on, on the other hand, are um, they never change. They're permanent. They're part of who we are as a person. They're part of our identity. Um, and they provide us kind of that sense of um, direction rather than a destination. Folks, if you are enjoying tonight's show, text the word WAIT to 404-737-0767 and I will text you right before we go live. That way you'll never miss a show and you can join us and watch it live with everybody else and be a part of the conversation in the comments, which most people say is the best part. I'll also send you some fun behind the scenes stuff too. All right, Nada, we just talked about values. The second strategy you recommend is taking time to reflect on whether our behaviors are in line with our values. So how how do you recommend people do that? Yeah, so, so again, reflection is a really big part of behavior change. It really allows our brain to create those connections between our behaviors um, and our feelings. And I usually encourage my patients to take time at the end of every day um, to sit down and kind of check in with themselves on how their day went and ask themselves questions like, were my behaviors and actions around food today in line with my values? Um, and were they, were, am I moving in the direction that I'd like to be moving in? And then if the answer is yes, 
um, they can, you know, write down, how does that make me feel? You see Mm -hmm. how we're tying behaviors Mm -hmm. with feelings. Um, So they would write down how it makes them feel. And then if the answer is no, again, how does that make me feel? And then on the, on the side where they wrote yes, um, then, you know, it's usually immediately followed by feelings of happiness and excitement and feeling in control and all these positive feelings. So the chances of these behaviors being um, repeated is is a little bit higher. And then the same goes on the other hand, when they wrote no, and that's usually may probably followed by slightly unpleasant or negative feelings. And the likelihood of them repeating that behavior uh, tends to decrease. All right. So I'm glad you brought up kind of like the the negative feelings that go along with, you know, when our behaviors don't line up with our values. Because I know for me, at least, you know, I sometimes shy away from that kind of reflection because I'm afraid it's just going to make me feel like a failure. So how do we not beat ourselves up when we're like, hmm, none of my behaviors today aligned with my values? Yeah, so you bring up a really good point, Ansley, because it can, you know, be very difficult for us to, um, you know, think of those behaviors that weren't in line with my values, with our values, because oftentimes they're led by, you know, these very strong negative feelings. Um, We often have, you know self-critical and self-sabotaging thoughts associated with this type of reflection as well. Um, And most people want to avoid feeling that way, um, you know, especially with all their other life stressors going on, right? They don't want to add that additional layer of stress at the end of every day. So it's not uncommon that we shy away from that kind of reflection, but it really is first important to understand why that's important and how that can help us in behavior change, right? It allows our brain to create those connections because if we just threw everything in the back burner, our brain wouldn't really register or make the link. And it can be so easy for us to continue repeating those behaviors that are not in line with our values. Whereas this reflection is important because, you know, when your body is about to repeat those behaviors again sometime in the future, your brain will just automatically remember how it felt the previous time and the likelihood or chances of it happening again um, usually decreases or diminishes. So let's talk about how we can remind ourselves of our values when we're in the process of making a choice. So for example, I really value feeling rested and getting enough sleep each night, but it's easy to get on Instagram at 10 o'clock at night and waste time when I should be getting ready to go to sleep. So how can I remind myself of my value in that moment to make a better choice? Mm -hmm. It can be difficult for sure. So it's important that we um, recognize what the high risk times of the day are. So what are the times of day um, that I tend to partake in those behaviors that are not in line with my values? And one strategy that I like to use with patients is just writing down um, why it's important for them to not partake in that behavior. So Evening time, scrolling on social media, 10 p.m. is a high-risk scenario for you. Um, And it's something that's kind of moving you away from the direction that you'd like to be moving in. So having a reminder um, or somewhere, you know, and writing down those values and reasons why you shouldn't be doing this behavior um, and keeping it in that area that's a high-risk Um, area for you or high-risk environments um, to just kind of constantly remind yourself of why you shouldn't be doing this behavior can sometimes help. Being conscious ahead of time when the moment comes, when we know it's going to be challenging, almost like our brain is pre-wired, like, ah, steer clear from here. Don't, don't do that. Yeah, exactly. 
it's an automatic behavior that we want to change. So writing down our values and kind of constantly reminding ourselves of the reasons why we shouldn't be doing it is, is important. Nada, our friend, Dr. Michael Vallis, talks a lot about permission thoughts and how often our thinking can really sabotage our best laid plans. So tell us what permission thoughts are and how we can work with them. So it's important to first note that um, our behaviors are usually led by some sort of thoughts in our brain. And if we can control our thoughts, we can in turn control our behaviors. So permission thoughts are these automatic thoughts that are generated by a subconscious part of our brain. They're usually led by some sort of craving or urge, and they tend to make us act in a way that's not in line with our values. So permission thoughts can sound something like, oh, you know what, I'll just have a little bit today and I'll start again tomorrow. Or you know what, you know, I'll just open this bag of chips, I'll have a few pieces, and then once my craving is satisfied, I'm gonna stop. Or you know what, I had a stressful day today and eating this will just make me feel so much better. So these are just some of the common permission thoughts. Um, and it's important that we you know, identify and recognize that these are often distorted thoughts. And that means that you know, they don't make that much sense and they're irrational and they're often not true. Um, so you know, how I, I help patients with creating that space between having the urge and then giving in, right? To just sit in, tune in with their brain, kind of listening to those messages messages that our brain is telling us and, and try to capture them and then ask ourselves, you know, what is the evidence that these thoughts are true? And if I were to act on these thoughts, will I be moving in the direction that I'd like to be moving in? And how will I really feel afterwards? All right. Strategy number four is learning how to do some urge surfing in order to manage a strong craving. And you were talking about cravings earlier. Tell us what urge surfing is and, and how does it help with cravings? Right. So urge surfing is, is another strategy that, you know, patients can use to help them um, with dealing with those cravings or urges. So similar to challenging these permission thoughts, urge surfing is just another strategy. So it's important to first note that, you know, our cravings are usually or our drive for food is a biological response. And oftentimes we really can't do much about that. So urge surfing basically means we're treating these urges or cravings as waves, right, that have crests and trouts, and we're just kind of riding the waves um, and accepting that um, we, you know, we are present in the moment, accepting that we're having these strong urges and cravings and kind of waiting until the urge goes away or decreases with time. So one exercise that I like to use with my patients, which is a little bit more practical, is to first um, rate, you know, first kind of ask themselves, what am I feeling, right? So trying to feel the craving physically in their body. So where am I feeling the craving? What are the thoughts that are going on inside of my mind at that time? And how am I feeling? And then rating the urge on a scale of one to 10, right? And, or rating the intensity of the urge. And then doing that same exercise, you know, five minutes later, and then continuing to ride or surf the waves and then doing that exercise again 10 minutes later and 15 minutes later, and just kind of asking themselves, um, how, did the intensity change with time? How did I feel with you know, not being able to give in to my craving, but instead kind of riding the waves? Um, so this is just an exercise, again, that helps patients uh, deal and manage those cravings that come along. And again, similar to challenging permission thoughts, urge serving is also a skill that we tend to get better at with more practice. 
Okay, Nada, the last strategy is learning resilience or being able to bounce back when setbacks happen. I think of resilience almost as like a personality trait. How do you help someone develop it as a skill? So it's important that we first anticipate that setbacks are a very normal part of success and that they will always happen, right? And, you know, knowing that, you know, it's it's important that we, you know, don't judge ourselves or have those self-critical or self-sabotaging thoughts in the face of setbacks. So the bag of chips example, you know, if you tell yourself or have a permission thought of, oh, I'm just going to have a few pieces of chips and once my craving is satisfied, I'm then going to stop. One way to work on changing that into more of a resilient thought or a thought that is going to bring you closer to the direction that you'd like to be moving in is to say, you know what, I've previously told myself that you know, I was just going to have a few pieces of chips once I've opened that bag, but I often found it very, very difficult to just stop at the few and then ended up eating a lot more, finishing the whole bag. So, you know, kind of working on challenging these, um, you know, self-critical or self-sabotaging thoughts and, and turning them into more resilient thoughts can help us with um, moving in that direction that we want to be moving in. So you said something interesting at the very beginning of your answer. You said setbacks are a natural part of success. And I've never heard anyone say that before. I think we think of setbacks equaling failure, but you're right. You know, like even if we are going to be successful, setbacks are going to happen. They're not a sign that it's all falling apart. Yeah, we use them as learning opportunities, right? And instead of having them pull us down, um, it's important that we learn from them moving forward. So one of the things that happens when we can when we get off track is that the negative self-talk can really go crazy. So any uh -huh. suggestions on how we might deal with that? Yeah, so so again, treating them as those distorted thoughts, right? Thoughts mm -hmm. that don't make sense, thoughts that are irrational. And similar to what we did with permission thoughts, we do create that space between having the thoughts and then acting, right? So, you know, working on capturing those thoughts, writing them down, um, trying to ask yourself what the evidence is behind, you know, those thoughts and whether or not they're true and whether or not you should be acting on them. Um, and that is just one strategy we can use to help us kind of change those self-critical or self-sabotaging thoughts into more resilient thoughts. Oh, I love it. All right. You mentioned ACT as an intervention that you use with your clients to help mm -hmm. them manage their weight. So tell us what ACT is and give me an example of a situation where it might be helpful. Yeah, so it's acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and just as a disclaimer, I'm not a therapist by any means, but I use this model within my scope of practice as a dietitian because it has been proven to be very effective in obesity management. So it kind of revolves around the concept of accepting that there are things in life that are beyond our control um, and then committing to act in a way that is in line with our values. It's basically um, separating ourselves from our thoughts and treating thoughts as just thoughts. One exercise that I like to use with patients is to just name or notice the thoughts that are going on. So for example, if we were to name and notice a self-critical thought, like I'm a failure and I'll never be able to do this, right? So one exercise that we use is to just write that thought down. So I'm a failure and I'll never be able to do this. And then on the second line, write down, I am having the thought that, and then dot, dot, dot. So I am a failure and I'll never be able to do this. And then on the third line, you can write, I am noticing 
that I am having the thought that I'm a failure and I'll never be able to do this. And with this exercise, um, they start to realize that, you know what, my thought is actually just a thought. And it allows them to kind of create that space between themselves and their thoughts. And, and that helps with, you know, this mindfulness and not kind of acting impulsively um, on those uh, on those thoughts. Even as you were talking about permission thoughts, it, it struck me like, for me, for so long throughout my life, it was like, if I had a thought, it was true. It would never have occurred to me to even mm-hmm. question, like, you know, is that really true? It just felt like that that voice in my head that yeah. was mean or told me I was a failure, that was just the fact. Right. And I love, you know, that three-part exercise really calls that into question in a, in a really powerful way. Yeah, yeah. In that moment, when we are having this strong urge, you know, these thoughts, do tend to make so much sense. And that's why we tend to act on them immediately. But if we write them down and then read them at a time when we aren't having a strong craving or an urge, then we start to realize that, you know what, they might actually not make that much sense. Uh, and then next time these thoughts show up, we, you know, we start, you know, recognizing, oh, hey, you know what, I actually now know for a fact that this thought is not true. Um, and that is just a permission thought that's led by some sort of craving that I'm having. Gosh, that is fantastic wisdom. Folks, try that three-part exercise at home. I bet it's going to make a big difference. So Nada, we know for a lot of people with obesity, diet and exercise alone isn't enough to help them reach a healthier weight. So for the folks that you're working with, do you encourage them to see a physician to explore other treatment options if it seems like behavioral interventions alone aren't going to get them where they want to be? Absolutely. Absolutely. I encourage every patient who's struggling with obesity to seek medical help to identify um, and address any underlying, you know, biological or physiological barriers, um, you know, or disturbances that may be leading to overeating or contributing to their obesity. So yes, absolutely. Nada, thanks so much for joining us tonight. You have shared such practical, helpful suggestions with us, and we really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you want to get a text reminder when we go live so you don't miss the next interview, just text the word WAIT to 404-737-0767. Thanks so much and have a great night.